Welcome to the Battle and the Bride. Welcome to the Battle and the Bride, where Christ is King and the Church his Bride. I'm Seth Dean, and this is the second sermon in the series in Philippians that I am preaching through at my local church. Before we get to the sermon, uh, the actual verses did not record, so I'm presenting them to you here. Uh, this sermon is on Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, and those verses read, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So here we are in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. And if you recall last week, we discussed Paul's nature of his prayer to the book of Philippians. We discussed his fervency in prayer. We discussed his joyfulness in prayer. We discussed his confidence and his prayer for the Christians at the church of Philippi. It all hinged on one thing, their shared fellowship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here in verses 7 through 8, he's going to finish his explanation of this prayer. He's going to finish the explanation of the nature of why he prays this way. And he's going to do so by discussing grace. And this is something that they share. Shared grace. Just as they share in the fellowship of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so too they will share in grace in several aspects of their lives. So in the book of Philippians, in chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, Paul teaches us that the fellowship of the gospel of Jesus Christ makes ordinary people into saints who share in the grace of God in all circumstances, having their hearts and minds transformed by that grace so that they are able to love the church and to pray for her in the same way as Jesus Christ. So the fellowship of the gospel makes all Christians partakers of the grace of God. We're going to see that play out in three ways in this passage. First, we're going to see that a right heart produces right thinking, which produces right praying. A right heart produces right thinking, which produces right praying. Secondly, we'll see how Christians who suffer for their faith defend their faith or confirm the faith in their lives are all partners of grace. They all share in it. And then finally, we will see the affection of Jesus Christ and how it is his heart that should be beating in every Christian for every Christian. So let's begin in verse 7, where our first point 
Right heart produces right thinking, produces right praying. So a church that is praiseworthy and powerful, that fellowships and shares in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are going to partake in God's unmerited favor in several ways when it comes to their prayer life. First, their hearts will be transformed. Their hearts will be transformed. Why do I say that? Paul tells the Philippians that it's right for him to think of them in this way because they are in his hearts, because they share in the grace of God. Paul's initial response to the church of Jesus Christ was not one of love. It was one of enmity. It was one of hatred. It was one of violence. The Bible says in Acts that he was breathing out threats against the church. But he has this church in his heart. Not for violence sake. Not to annihilate them. But because he loves them. It wasn't on the, until the road to Damascus where Paul's life was transformed. His heart was transformed. And it wasn't done by an act of his own will. It was changed because Jesus Christ changed Paul's heart. Jesus Christ saved Paul. That salvation by Jesus Christ ushered Paul into the fellowship of the gospel particularly the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles. But he would always go to the Jews first. And this change of heart, so to speak, it, it wasn't done by persuasion. It was done by power. What did we discuss last week? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And it is this power that changed the heart of Paul, this holy, divine power of the gospel and the grace of God. And this happens in us too. When we are converted, when we hear the gospel, the Lord God Almighty fulfills his promise in Ezekiel. Just the passage that we read, he, he fulfills that promise to remove our stony hearts and to give us a heart of flesh and put a new spirit within us, the Holy Spirit. So this doesn't just make us nice. It utterly changes us, changes us from the roots up. We are no longer sons of disobedience, as Paul writes in Ephesians. We are the cherished, unique people of God himself. And we are made so by God's unmerited favor, his grace, by the righteousness of Christ. It's this unmerited favor, the unmerited love of God, that transforms our hearts. And from there, a work is begun not just in our hearts, it transforms the whole man. So it doesn't just affect our affections towards one another. It doesn't just affect our affections towards the church as a whole. It also affects the way that we think. It affects our thinking. So this brings us to our next point that this this fellowship in the gospel, this shared grace, this unmerited favor, it transforms our mind. So our transformed hearts produces transformed thinking. In Romans 12, 2, Paul writes, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what 
is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that this new covenant in Jesus Christ's blood, this fellowship of the gospel, it is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 33, where he writes, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. A regenerate man will not only display a change of affection toward God and God's people, he will not only love God, but he will think correctly about God. A regenerate man will not just have his affections towards God changed, he will not only be able to love God and love him well and love the people of God, he will also be able to think correctly about who God is. And this is why we see church councils throughout history. They're defending against false teachers because it is paramount that the church of God worship God in spirit and in truth. There is a correct way for a Christian to act and to think. There are wrong ways for Christians to act and to think. The born-again Christian will be led by the Spirit, by the grace of God, into all truth. On our, our Wednesday night family fellowship, we're going through the booklet about false teachers and false teachings. These are people who think they know God and they do not, and they are teaching lies about God. They are not born again. They do not live in the truth. And it is necessary, absolutely vital, that the church fight back against this with the truth. We have the scriptures. Use them. Read them. Learn who God is. Learn him well. Know him. This is one of the glorious graces of the Christian faith, to be able to know God. And Jesus Christ says that you will know the truth. You will know it. And the truth will set you free. So Paul says in Romans 8, 5, that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit whom we have been given, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So this right thinking will not only allow a man to think correctly about God or to seek after the truth about God, but it will also transform us so that we can think correctly about one another. We all share the same spirit, the same heart. We need to share the same mind of Christ. In Titus 3, Paul reminds us of our former way of thinking compared to who we are now, after God has saved us. He says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice, and envy, hateful, and hating one another. Hateful and hating one another. 
and the glorious but in all scripture. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So as a church, do you think about one another? Do you think about the others in the pew? We are the holy, Catholic, universal church of God. Do you love one another? Not, not as the world says love should be, but a Christian love. Way more powerful, way more lasting, way more worth dying for. We are the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ himself, adopted into the family of God. Do you love one another with that same ardent brotherly love? And so we see the transform, transformed heart, transformed thinking, and this should transform the way that we pray. Our next point, transformed praying. The born-again Christian with a new heart and a transformed mind is going to pray for God's people in the same way that Paul does in verses 3 through 6, with fervency, joyfulness, and confidence in Jesus Christ. E.M. Bounds writes in his book, The Essentials of Prayer, Paul spreads the nature of prayer over the whole man. It must be so. It takes the whole man to embrace in its godlike sympathies the entire race of man, the sorrows, the sins, and the death of Adam's fallen race. It takes the whole man to run parallel with God's high and sublime will in saving mankind. It takes the whole man to stand with our Lord Jesus Christ as the one mediator between God and sinful man. The whole man is transformed by this fellowship of the gospel and the grace of God. So Christian, how is your prayer life? How is it? If you find it weak and ineffective, if you are listless in prayer, then you can come to the scriptures and you can follow this example. We have been given many examples of prayer in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, in the New Testament. It is, it's of supreme importance, just as it is to defend the truth, praying well, praying correctly, loving one another, loving God. All of these things are of supreme importance, and we're giving, given examples here of how to go about that and what is necessary, what is good, what is fruitful. And if you are weak in your prayer, go to God in prayer and ask him to strengthen you. Ask him to teach you how to pray like Paul, how to pray like Christ. So we all as Christians partake of this grace, this unmerited transforming love of God, and it transforms our hearts, our minds, and our prayers. And this brings us to the second main point, the Christian's partnership of grace. 
That word partakers of grace, when he says that you, the Philippian church, you are partakers of grace with me, it's a partnership. You are partnering, not just in the fellowship of the gospel, you're not just partners in the gospel, but you are partners of grace. So we see grace in suffering. Grace in suffering. If you're going to fellowship in the gospel, it means you are going to fellowship in persecution. You are going to be persecuted. You are going to suffer. There are varying levels of persecution. Paul was in chains for a short time in Philippi. It was a very short time, but he was in chains nonetheless. He was stripped, beaten, humiliated. And yet he was there because of the gospel. The Philippian church, they were sharing in Paul's chains. Paul was in chains when he wrote this letter. Some people think Rome. Some people think Ephesus. Paul was suffering, being persecuted for the gospel of God. He was writing to Christians, fellow Christians, who also were suffering and being persecuted for the gospel of God. And so these people were sharing in God's grace. There is an abundance of grace to those who suffer for the sake of Christ. In the midst of those trials, they are partakers and enjoying God's unmerited favor. How can this be? We see here pain equals favor. Loss equals God's favor. It's different than how the world thinks. This is different than how the world thinks it should be. There are many people out there telling you to come to Christ so you can get more. And Jesus Christ says, come to me and die. Die to self. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He who loses much in this world, who loses husband, wife, property, children, they will gain manifold blessings in the kingdom to come. So our world thinks that favor looks a lot like gain, but not the apostles. In Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 42, we're told, And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching as Jesus preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so Paul, he's going to build on this theme later in this epistle. It's one of the reasons why we're focusing very heavily in these first few verses, because he's going to build on this theme as the epistle, as the epistle goes on. That's kind of what he does. He was very good at it. But this whole idea is antithetical to the word of faith movement. As we saw on Wednesday night, as we went through the, the book, Uh, The word of faith movement, the prosperity gospel, that is a doctrine of demons that teaches you to go after your best life now. And your best life now is not a teaching of scripture. Your best life now mentality, the prosperity gospel uh, doctrine of demons will only breed greed, selfishness, cowardice. Cowardice, I cannot emphasize that enough. Weakness and covetousness. True Christians are transformed away from those things. 
They no longer have a heart for that. They don't lust after the gain of the world. They are transformed by grace and are therefore by grace willing to suffer loss. They are willing to die, to lose everything in order that they may obtain Christ. We see also here, our next point under this, the grace in defending and confirming the gospel. You see, when you are sharing in the fellowship of the gospel, you are going to be preaching Jesus Christ and people are going to persecute you. But we also have to defend and confirm it. You may not just get a slap in the face or your kneecaps shot out. You may just have to have a good, healthy debate. Just as the apostles received a beating, they went back out every single day to teach and preach Jesus as the Christ. So will a transformed church and transformed Christians boldly defend the gospel by the same powerful, transformed preaching, preaching the grace of God. So the word for defend here is apologia. I'm sure you've Heard that before, if you're in the Reformed camp, there's Apologia Studios and Apologia Ministries, Apologia Church, where Jeff Durbin is. Uh, but that literally means defense, to give a defense. Uh, you, do you realize that as we are partakers in the unmerited favor of God, we do that when we witness? Do you feel that way? When we preach, when we teach, when we proclaim Jesus as the Christ, and we give a defense, an actual active defense, For Jesus Christ, our hope, even if it isn't received well, we share with Paul and the Philippians in the grace of God. Are we tempted by the devil to remain in our homes, surrounded by our comforts, rather than to go out and seek a beating or seek a verbal abuse by proclaiming the gospel as an offense? Let it not be. Let us live in the truth and for the truth. The truth is that when we go out and we witness to the lost and to the unbelieving, we are partaking more and more of God's favor. It may not feel that way, but that's the truth. That's what Paul's communicating here. Is that not something you want? Is that not something we want to share in? Is that not the same thing Christ did? He preached and defended and confirmed the gospel in his life. Is that not what the apostles did? They they preached and defended and confirmed the gospels, the gospel with their life. Is that not our commission as well? To preach the gospel. To do it boldly. And to live out your godly lives to the glory of God. That is part of confirming the gospel. When you live out your faith. When you give feet to your faith, as some say. In 1 Peter 3, 14-15, he writes... But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. You are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, 
nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense, an apologia. Give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. When Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door yelling, you're going to hell and slamming the door in their face, that's not giving a defense. That's like being in a, a dodgeball tournament and standing on one side of the line and shouting, I win, and then running off the court. Well, you didn't win anything. You didn't even play the game. Uh, it's a scary thing to think that we must defend the gospel. It is an active thing that we have to participate in, but we have to be ready. We have to be trained for these things. That's one of the reasons why I love that we, we, uh, our children learn catechism time and they go over these things because they are basic but fundamental truths about God and about Scripture and you're beginning to equip your children right now for the defense of the gospel as they grow up. Children, you are going to encounter people who you will need to defend the gospel to, against. I forget the preposition. That's probably why you're not supposed to end sentences with prepositions. But there are people who are going to need the gospel and they are not going to believe you no matter how much you reason with them, but you need to stand firm in the faith and know what the gospel is and know the truth about God. So be constant in your catechisms, children, and listen to your parents and do the work. It will produce a fruit, a harvest of righteousness. In Hebrews 13, 12 through 14, it says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Martin Luther once wrote, Whenever the true message of the cross is abolished, the anger of hypocrites and heretics eases, and all things are in peace. This is a sure token that the devil is guarding the entry of that house and that the pure doctrine of God's word has been taken away. The church then is in the best state when Satan assaileth it on every side, both with subtle slights and outright violence. And likewise, it is in the worst state when it is most at peace. Do not be afraid when we suffer insults or worse, because of Jesus Christ. There is sufficient grace for those days. But be afraid when we do not suffer. Do not be afraid when we suffer for Christ, but be afraid when you do not suffer. So this brings us to verse 8, and we see here the affection of Christ. After this verse, he's going to give a prayer, but he's going to finish off his explanation of the manner in which he prays for the church in this verse. He says, for God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Why should I bother praying with such thankfulness? 
Why should I bother praying with fervor? Why should I bother praying with joyfulness and rejoicing in the midst of trials? Why should I pray with such confidence? Why should I proclaim my heart for the church? Why should I proclaim our partnership of grace? That's what he's saying. Because Paul was teaching the Philippians the nature of the love of Christ. We look back at Ezekiel eleven nineteen. It says, then I will give them one heart. And I will put a new spirit within them. What heart? One heart. Whose heart? It's the heart of our master. It is the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are united by the heart of Christ. In Ephesians 3.17, it says that, that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. The full passage says, says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. He's talking about praying again. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit, in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend. See, this is the same, same concept to the Ephesians, just as in Philippians. Comprehension. We're talking about the mind. Comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Jesus Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Christ dwelling in our hearts produces in us, in all the saints of God, a knowledge of the love of Christ that is incomprehensible to carnal man. Christ dwelling in our hearts produces in us a knowledge of the love of Christ that is incomprehensible to the carnal man, the unsaved man, those who have a heart of stone, the unregenerate. This knowledge of Christ's love is given to us so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you know, right now, the way that Paul prayed for the Philippians, that is the way that Christ is praying for you and for me. Do you know that Jesus Christ is longing for us? Do you think about that? He has his affections set on us. The devil will lie to you and tell you that whatever circumstances you're going through or whatever or sin you're struggling with because you're still in the flesh, that Christ is ready to smite you. When you are saved when you are born again, Christ longs for you. His affections are set upon you. He is eagerly waiting for that moment when the Father tells him that it is time to return and to gather his saints to himself. Why? Because of his great love for us. And in Romans 8, 35 through 39, 
It's a very famous passage. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So Christian, I know many in this congregation have been going through various seasons of trials and difficulties, I'm among you. Are you despairing today because of the great loneliness in your heart? Perhaps you're at odds with your spouse or at odds with your children. Perhaps there is a sin that has overcome you and it constantly prevails over you. Time again, you have failed in the time of testing. There's a great weight upon your mind. You fear that you have exhausted the grace of God. You fear that you've run out of the measure of God's love for you. You fear that you are beyond hope. Or you fear that whatever trial you are facing will not end. Or you are in the midst of such deep grief and depression and hopelessness that you fear the worst ever and always and are grasping for a ray of light. To you, I would say, Christian, take heart. Take heart. The heart beating in your chest is the heart of Christ. He gave it to you. He dwells with you. He will not leave you, nor forsake you. No trouble in this world can overcome you. No grief can grind you to dust. No sin is so great that it will have the final mastery over you. Death itself will not hold you because Jesus Christ loves you and you are saved by his grace, not by your works, not by your circumstances. By his grace, you are saved. So pray on, pray on with fervency, with joyfulness, with confidence, with a transformed heart, with a transformed mind. Pray with powerful prayers. Pray with all the grace poured out upon us, we who share in God's grace through the fellowship of the gospel. Pray in your circumstances, for one another, with all the love and affection of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord God, we are so blessed by you. Father, that you would love us to such an extent that we haters of God with a heart of stone, desires and affection only towards rebellion and hatred and envy and lust, seeking only after 
our fleshly desires, satisfying our sinful nature, which could never be satisfied. Lord God, by your love, your grace, your mercy, you saved us. You sent Jesus to die for us and to be raised to new life for us so that we can share in the heart of Christ. And that instead of being alone, instead of being miserable, instead of being hopeless, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, Christ dwells in us, in our hearts. Lord, we know your love when we only knew your wrath and your condemnation. We know your peace. We are not the same people that we were before you saved us. And by your grace, you are going to continue to sanctify us and conform us more and more, not into our image of ourselves, but into the image of your Son. And then as we go through trials, you are doing that. As we defend the gospel, you are doing that. As we confirm it in our lives, you are doing that, making us more and more into the image of our Savior. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your love for this church. Thank you, Lord, that you have set ourselves in one another's hearts that we would come week after week to worship together because of the love that you have poured out into our hearts, the love that we all share, the heart that we all share, the spirit that we all share, the gospel that we all share, and the grace that we all share. We praise you and thank you for this mighty work. We pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Battle and the Bride. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. For more information, visit thebattleandthebride.com. If you have any questions, you can email us at thebattleandthebride at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Thank you.